0: A podcast one production.
1: This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way, ...to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Remo Jaffray is a creative strategist with a long record as an entrepreneur, retail merchant and brand builder. He founded the iconic Remo General Store in 1988 and the General Thinking Network in 2001... In 2009 he took on the license for TEDx Sydney immediately turning it into the gold standard for TEDx events globally. Bursting with ideas and optimism he's rarely discouraged and certainly never idle. As part of my preparation for this conversation which I have been enormously looking forward to I reread your fabulous book and there's a quote from it that I want to read out. Storytelling is paramount and sometimes we can use things to connect us to what really matters. And that's the people who are associated with those things. Mm. Now that is what this whole show is about. That, that could be the summation of what mm. I'm trying to do with Five of My Life. So Where's I, my
0: clip? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I am, I am doubly thrilled yeah. that, that yeah. you are on this show because you you get it. Yeah. Um, and on the subject of stories, before we get to your choices and stories, I'd like to ask you what's been your uh, favourite Five of My Life story
0: so far? I really enjoyed Kate McClymont's. Story, you know, I knew, I've, I know her, not well. I've met her a few times, but I just found it very frank, very honest, um, interesting. I didn't know all of those tragic yeah. things about her family, but also just her describing her craft and how it. And the ins and outs of it, and the encrypted conversations, and the meetings behind uh, stables. I just, I was enthralled by the whole thing, actually. So.
1: Yeah, she's a fascinating, fascinating yeah. woman.
0: I, I love that conversation. Mm. But we're
1: here to talk about you and your choices, and we t- start traditionally with the film. Uh, and you have chosen the first film ever in human history to win a Best Picture Oscar as a sequel. You've mm. chosen Godfather Part Two, 1974. Uh, tell us about that, mate.
0: I was very reluctant to actually put that one down. It's such a cliche. No, before an italo-Australian boy to put the Godfather Part Two, but it was it went beyond the um, you know ethnic affinity. Um, the figure of the you know Don Corleone, um born of the Godfather original movie, and then um, the, the whole backstory, early, um, early 1900s, New York City, da-da-da-da-da. It just reminded me so much of my father, who was not an organised criminal, by the way, but um, the, his spirit was very similar, very uh, paternal, um, successful immigrant here in Australia with many hundreds of employees working in factories from all nationalities the the shiny suit the the um the squeeze of the fruit as you walk past the fruit stand the uh, knowing everybody's name their children that that that's sort of you know Don Corleone meets um, Oscar Schindler that was my father
1: Now, no, no, you mentioned the the ethnic uh similarity but for yeah. people who don't know could you yeah. describe uh, your your family's origins
0: um I'm full blood Italian. Uh, Dad uh, was born in Sicily um, in 1912, came out here as a very young man in in his teens on his own. Um, In those days, um, when I think it was the, they were providing Malvasia for the Spanish army or something. And then when that crop failed in the islands, they had nothing except capers. Um, to, to live on. So all, uh, anyone with any ambition, uh, ended up moving to the new world, whether that would be the United States or Canada or Australia. And, uh, my, uh, father's brother went to Boston, you know, dad came to Sydney, I think he was 14. Um, he had a distant relative here working in the, uh, in the fruit markets and that was his first job, but he, uh. Uh, yeah, so that's Dad's side from a tiny little island off the coast of uh, Sicily, as part of the Aeolian Islands. Um, and Mum uh, was born here in Sydney of Italian parents, one from Naples and, and the other one from actually the same island that Dad was from. So full blood, uh, full blood Wog boy, growing up in uh, Sydney's eastern suburbs. But that was the that was my history.
1: and, and he became quite a successful businessman.
0: Yeah, he was the uh, that classic industrial entrepreneur. Um, he started in the, as I say, in the flower market, uh, fruit markets, then then the flower markets. Then he bought his own florist, and then it was two florists and three florists and four flor- a chain of four in Kings Cross and Elizabeth Bay and Paddington, you know, all around there. And um, uh, then that kind of segued into a business manufacturing cellulose. Uh, transparent uh, celluloid boxes for the presentation of flowers. And, you know, the, the family legend um, propagated by him was that he was in a, in a movie, an American movie, and some bellboy delivered these flowers to somebody in one of these boxes, and he thought, that's a great idea, and he kind of ran out of the theatre without <laughs> skipping a beat. So then he got into manufacturing and uh, one different kind of factory after the other, metal stamping the, uh, in Camperdown, it was the the Popolare Popolare Metal Stamping, stamping Company. It was uh, the popular metal stamping company, uh, and uh, they made cosmetic packaging for all of the big cosmetic brands. Elena Rubenstein, who he knew, and you know, met all of those people. So, and then in the war, during the war, the the production ch- changed from lipstick containers to bullets. Right. Um, uh, and meanwhile, the kind of the the guy who did well early in his life was able to help a lot of other people, and he became um, the go-to man for Italian immigrants coming here. Right, often their first job would be at Popol- Popolaire or one of his factories. They used to call it uh, Popolaire the Iron Lung because it was uh, it was the life support system for an Italian immigrant coming to Australia. Wow their, their first job before going somewhere else. And then he formalized that philanthropic work, um, in the fifties by founding something called the Italo Australian Welfare Centre, which then morphed into a Commonwealth government funded, uh, organization called COAZIT. And so he was the founding president of COAZIT, which still exists today and, there, uh, there in Leichhardt, there's the uh, G.A. Giuffre boardroom uh, <laughs> to celebrate his uh, founding of that. So along the way, he was recognized by the Italian government a bunch of times wow. um, as a Comandatore and then a Grande u- Ufficiale and then by the Australian government. Um, so he, was a, he lived a very rich and generous life. And, and as I'm looking at the the man in front of me
1: now um are you a fifty fifty combination of the traits of your mum and dad or did you get most of them from your mum or most of them from your dad and explain which ones you think you got from which uh
0: yeah probably fifty fifty um uh mum is a warrior or was was um a warrior more of a warrior more um uh, worry, not warrior. So it's like, you, not, not a, not a sort of um, um, a sword, fight, carrying, sword warrior. carrying warrior. She worries. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I probably get my um, uh, physical cowardice and uh, from my physical cowardice and uh, anxiety from her. So you're not very uh, good in a street fight. No, I'd be running the other way. <laughs> I think. Uh, no, I'm really. I think I, I have courage. Uh, on some levels, but you know, I, I do uh, I do arduous, but I don't do perilous.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, so that the worry side from your mum and from your dad. And- um,
0: well, the I guess the entrepreneurial, you know, um, make your own path, do your own thing, do what's right, but you know, be certain about that. Um, also, he was the designer. Um, as well as the the uh, you know the owner and so he he designed the the aluminium furniture that then went into production in his factory so and um, i grew up um seeing him at the kitchen table with scraps of paper and napkins designing chairs and one thing or another untrained uh formally untrained but he was very good uh at uh, imagining those things and then manifesting them in his factory.
1: Well, this is a very good link to the second choice on Five of My Life. You, For your book, you've chosen Ayn Rand's 1943 classic, The Fountainhead. Mm. Um, Tell us about the book and your story behind it.
0: I was unaware, once again, very kind of clichéd and un-PC choice, but... um, Now, 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 why do you say that, by the way? Well... It is, it's been a long time since I read it, to be honest with you. Um, but it is pretty alt right kind of. Uh, I I'm not so sure, really. Uh, yeah, I, so I, I, I've
1: read lots, yeah, yeah. lots of her yeah. work and, and that yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I think she's very easily misunderstood. Yeah, um, so I, I was glad you chose the book because I, I, I remember
0: to, that I, I all. When I read it, I was living in New York. I was 24. I was doing my MBA. Right. Um, And uh, a friend of mine who was doing an MBA there at the same time was reading it at the same time. So we were sort of... It's a life-changing book for many people. Yeah. It was, um, you know, I don't know if the listeners are aware of the storyline, but it's basically, you know, an architect who forges his own path and... uh, um, is certain of his own um, uh, work and believes in that good work is its own reward and that it's not necessarily about what other people think of it. It's He's about- not big on compromise, is he? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I remember feeling um, uh, invigorated um, yeah. by by that at the time and um Feeling that I too, uh, you know, I guess it it solidified my self belief, right, um, and um, gave me, uh, you know, confidence, extra confidence. I mean, I was already fairly confident. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: interesting. I mean, she went slightly nutty at the end of her end of her days, but she said, "I am prime. I am not primarily an advocate for capitalism." But of reason. Mm. And her major influence was Aristotle. Right. So, so it's easy now, looking back in a woke Eastern suburbs way, to go, Ooh, she was a fascist. No, she hated fascism. Yeah. So uh, th- that book is an incredible book. Yeah. But I-, I need to uh, hear how the hell did you get yourself to New York? Look at you in Manhattan doing your MBA. It sounds yeah.
0: fabulous. I um, did study commerce and law, and I worked as a lawyer for a split second. Living on the island, on, on Madden? No, here in, 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 in Sydney with um, Baker and McKenzie, um, who were still, uh, you know, probably the world's biggest law firm. Um, I enjoyed that intellectual challenge of that and I actually enjoyed the people that I was working with, but I didn't enjoy the work that I was doing. Sure. And I, I knew, I, I actually knew that it wasn't going to be retain me for that long. And then I just saw the MBA as a way to disrupt, um, that and, and expose me to, um, more opportunities and, and more. And I I was fortunate that my family was able to support that ambition. Um, I mean, it's not the financial commitment that it is these days, but even then It was something, and, uh, so I left Baker McKenzie after a year and, um, went to Columbia Business School and lived, um, you know, initially on the Upper West Side and uh, in in a sort of a big shared house thing called the International House. Then I, I went over the wall and moved into a share house on, in the East Village with, um, a Norwegian drummer and a Danish dancer. (laughs) And we lived above, um, a restaurant called the Dumpling House, um, the corner of 11th Street and 2nd Avenue, which is, which then became, um, um, David Chang's first, uh, Momofoku, uh, dumpling house, right. which is still there today, but it was a pretty rough neighborhood in those, uh, so it was in 1985, uh, 84, 85. Um, you know, I do remember on more than one occasion hearing gunshot in the, gunshots in the street. and, uh, um, but it was an exciting time, um, to be living in New York. Uh, I have to say, it was the 80s, it was nightclubs and the Palladium and Keith Haring and Aria and, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, up there were the happiest
1: times in your life?
0: It was, I wouldn't I wouldn't characterise them as the happiest, but it's, there's certainly a, a lightness of being that you have when you are that age. You've kind of done your study or you've, you're in the process of completing your study. You don't yet have a whole bunch of commitments. You're living in a place where nobody really knows you and you can kind of finesse your own persona and brand as, uh, as much as you would like to. Um, it just feels, uh, it feels uh, kind of special, unique, not to be repeated phase of your life. You know? it, it's, it's
1: a time where... You can take opportunities. Mm. There are, there are <laughs> later on in your life, many opportunities may present themselves in a whole host of different realms of our existence. Mm. And you go, well, I, well, that's not me. I'm yeah. sixty-year-old and blah blah blah, and I've got certain roles and responsibilities. But if you're living it up in East Village in New York, and, yeah. yeah, God, well, I, I'm retrospectively jealous of you, mate. It mm. sounds. No, like a,
0: it was a really great, um, great experience.
1: Your third choice it's mm-hmm. the, uh, the the song on five of my life there's a there's a Spotify playlist where all of the guests mm. uh, uh, choices are on and I'm thrilled to be adding yours mate because uh, you've chosen a a song from a soundtrack uh, it's um, Robert Altman's 1980 Robin Williams's Popeye film mm-hmm. not the Best film in the world one could suggest, <laughs> but it, I'm not here to pass judgment. Uh, you, you've chose the, the, the Shelley Duval, a wonderful song, He Needs Me, written by Harry Nilsson, the American Beatle, um, and there's a fabulous story behind that. May, will you, will you tell us about why you chose that song?
0: I can't remember how I, we ended up with the cassette tape of it. It could have been Melanie's ex-boyfriend, Ricky Fatar, who was the drummer from the Beach Boys, actually. Melanie went out
1: with the drummer from the Beach yes. Boys. Now
0: that is a dinner party <laughs> classic. You win it right there. That's the mic drop. <laughs> no, anyway, uh, I'm guessing that's maybe where it came from but um, uh, because Ricky was friends with Robin Williams. Um, but uh, I had been, I met Melanie soon after I returned from New York in, uh 1987 and um became quickly smitten with her more smitten with her than she was with me um and more or less spent three or four years trying to sort of talk her around and uh the the day when the day that things started to change significantly for us we were playing we were in the car together playing that right. set tape on the way to a birthday party on the, um, uh, in Whale beach or Palm beach. I think it was a recently deceased, sadly Martin Armage's, um, birthday. And, uh, Melanie had called me that morning to see if I would accompany her. I was living in a flat in Bondi, um, on the beach, uh, And, um, I didn't say yes straight away, which completely confused her. Later on, I think she figured out that I had someone else with me when she called. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that was a bonus point for me as well. But I, but it was a foggy day. We were crossing the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The music was playing and there was just this kind of feeling of euphoria for some reason, you know, that, that was welling in the car. I could start to see her defenses dropping after so many years. And it was a wonderful day, and that music was kind of, you know, galvanised to that moment, and so has become uh, kind of a very fond memory for me. Um, that's a, that's a that's beautiful
1: stuff. story. Could, could, would you mind telling us about <laughs> the fax machine story? I was howling with oh, laughter. All right, that, <laughs> I just
0: disc- well, as a way to illustrate the sort of disinterest. The uh, deep disinterest that Melanie had uh, for me at one point, uh, as I was travelling quite a lot for my Remo General Store at the time and doing buying trips, and um, it was the days of um, it was the days of faxing, and I had a little portable fax machine that looked like a tissue dispenser, actually. And I would uh, document what I was doing, who I was meeting, my fascinating trip, and send the faxes to her. She was running a super successful photographer's agency on um, Victoria Street in Potts Point. And as I have been told, my, my, the fax machine would come to life. She would see it was from me. She would turn the fax machine around 90 degrees so that the fax paper would go immediately into the rubbish bin. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a fairly brutal,
1: brutal image. The, the passion and persistence that you showed in 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 convincing that lovely lady to to hook up with you uh, is apparent in the passion and persistence with which you have been a leading light for TED. And, and I'd love you to tell us about that because that's a that's an incredibly interesting journey. It's ninety one you started.
0: No. Ninety-one, um, was a, uh, heyday year for the Remo General Store and we had a big catalog that won all sorts of awards and ended up on the desk of the founder of Ted in New York unbeknownst to me. And he once again sent, you know, once again, the fax machine, uh, sent me a fax saying, just, just saw a copy of your catalog. It's wonderful. It reminds me of the Whole Earth Catalogue. Um, I organized this annual event. I'd love to invite you as my guest uh, on the condition that you can bring um, 800 of those catalogues with you to give to the attendees. And uh, never heard of it, did a bit of research, sounded interesting, and um, went, attended. Uh, the next one was going to be in 1993 in Kobe, Japan, that, which was kind of weird because they they were always in Monterey, in the U.S. But this he tried doing one offshore, and that was the first one I attended. And um, you know, I, I immediately became bewitched by this um, incredible event that, with the most fascinating group of attendees you could imagine, you know, um, um, and the uh, the randomness of the topics the you know, the Buddhist monk followed by an opera singer followed by a, you know, brain scientist followed by, you know, Bill Gates. And you never knew who you were going to be standing next to at the urinal. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, so I went the following year. He asked me to do the T-shirts for the speakers. And then the year after that, he asked me to do the T-shirts for everybody. And um, so, you know, there was lots of horse trading in those days. He, he was a mercurial... Um, guy, Richard Saul Werman was his name. He used to be Frank Gehry's partner. Um, and he was, um, known, he was best known for his, um, he had this series of travel guides called the access guides that he, he was the first guy to organize information by neighborhood and not function. So the chapter had a neighborhood and there was the museum stream and then the shopping stream. And, you know, it was kind of a clever, Clever thing. Then he wrote a seminal book called Information Anxiety, Um, and he's written many, many books since then. So, so I was a, like a quote unquote Tedster for a long time. And in the years where I wasn't going broke here in Sydney, I tried to get to California to meet who were now my friends that I was seeing kind of w- once a year and checking in on. And then you know, cut to uh, the two thousands, and then they had this. They developed this licensing program called TEDx, and um, they needed a safe pair of hands in Australia. They knew me well, and uh, they actually approached me and asked me if I would uh, do it. I was running a rebooted Remo general store as an online business from a very small, you know, hole in a wall location um, on. Um, um, it could have been the one on bon- shop shopfront on Bondi road or a warehouse, um, in, uh, in Surrey Hills. I forget, but I, you know, talked it over with Melanie. Um, I was about to turn 50. It, I had a, you know, developed a expertise in a profile as a kind of the t-shirt guy and the coffee beans guy and the you know things person. And it, And I was always interested in more than that. Um, and this seemed to be like a good way to, um, reposition, uh, the things guy as the ideas guy. So yeah, I took it on and it just picked up a lot of momentum very quickly because of the depth of my legacy network, born of all of the work I'd done over many decades, um, with the Remo business. You, you do a fabulous job with it. it Sydney's regarded
1: as, I mean, I don't want to embarrass you, but it, one of the very best in the world, isn't it?
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah it's, um, we've turned it into something that it wasn't necessarily intended to be, which is much generally much more grassrootsy and uh, low-key. Um, but, uh, you know, the people that I involved as collaborators early on were all at the top of their game and were all kind of interested in pushing it as hard and as um, high as it could be I, I wonder... you're probably you're too shy to admit that you were um, in the first <laughs> very first group of speakers I remember that conversation
1: I'd never heard of Ted and <laughs> when you asked me I uh, sort of whatever and then when, when I when I investigated do you remember I called you back and said yeah. I, I, I can't do it you, you've got the wrong Nigel because these <laughs> people I'm looking at in a, in America they're seriously good <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I've got very fond memories of that, mate. I'm I'm very grateful that you sort of got me into into the TED world. Um, I, I want to circle back, um, uh, because there's a really interesting story uh, buried away in you just casually saying, "Oh, this bloke in, in America, you know, catalogue landed in his desk." Yeah. That's because the the the, the Remo store. I, I wish I'd come to Australia earlier because I don't get it. I haven't got that that cultural heritage of having grown up with it. I meet people who go on about the store on, mm. it was Oxford Street wasn't it, mm. they go on that I can't understand because I, I wasn't here, there. I mean I know you, love you, love the Remo, blah, blah 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 but I didn't understand the, the people tell me every single week, every Christmas it, it was just this icon, mm. such an icon that someone in America yeah. is getting a catalogue, To tell us a bit about the Remo
0: store story for people who might not yeah. know When I returned from America I had all of these degrees, you know the commerce degree, law degree, MBA, the corporate world is your oyster. But but because I was so, um, my own person, I just couldn't, um, you know, I did get a real job for a little while, uh, as the head of business development for some uh, media company. Is it soul crushing? Uh, it was soul crushing (laughs) and it was kind of like, I just couldn't understand the relationship between my effort and the end user, the, the punter. Because there probably wasn't one, mate. Because there probably wasn't one. <laughs> but um, so I really wanted to simplify uh, that, and I wanted I wanted to cut out all of the steps, and I wanted to be able to do something that I could then serve someone with, a cup of coffee. I don't know, sell them, sell them a t-shirt. So I um, I ended up um, taking over the lease on this um, five and dime, you know, Greek gift shop on the corner of Crown and Oxford Street, which had been there for a long time. And I, I thought my mother's reaction was, "Darling, you've got three degrees and you're opening a shop. Please help me understand. <laughs> we sent you to New York,
1: yeah, you bastard. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't exactly
0: the you know the immigrant's dream for the for the next generation professional uh, son. But for me, it was um, semi desperate. It was like, okay, I choose to live a life of passion. I don't you know care if that's a small life of passion, but I choose to live a life of passion. Hopefully." I, there will be enough people who will resonate with the things that I have cu- that I will curate from both here and elsewhere and develop that I will be able to you know eke out um, a self-employed existence. But it was just a phenomenon from day one. you know like uh, it even before it opened, people were talking about it and running news stories on it. and it, it just literally had, know big black window with the one word you know remo opening soon and that was kind of enough to uh and it was an interesting time in darlinghurst too there was a lot of creative energy the old sergeant's pie building was full of squatting designers and artists mark newson um uh, jewelers every every you know sculptors every every hat makers every lots of creative energy and so apart from anything else, apart from bringing in manufactured items and telling their stories, it also served to be a platform for that creative community. They would do their art, make their art, but they would also make something that could be sold. So I was like the real real world Etsy, if you like. Yeah. So we had a department that was the real world Etsy and sold all manner of um, manifestations of contemporary design energy from that corner of Darlinghurst. And we were blessed with a five-meter window, which very soon after we opened, we we realised could be you know our cheapest form of advertising. So we paid a signwriter to change that every two weeks to something very bold and very um, you know striking. And so that those windows became very well known in Sydney as a sort of a, a pulse of what was happening didn't always try to sell stuff it celebrated things um, um, you know the Mardi Gras whatever it was when when a homeless guy called Barrow man died uh, in a very sort of anonymous way I was sitting at a dinner with an artist called Richard Goodwin who told me the barrow man story who sketched a silhouette of Barrow man I recognized that because I'd seen this guy pushing a barrow with a with a helmet on, with his, like, dark face buried deep, you know, as he walked along. Um, Richard turned out to be the only person at this guy's funeral. Uh, nobody knew him, so we decided there and then at that dinner that we would celebrate Barrow Man in the window. So Richard, um, provided, gave me the sketch, I gave it to the sign writer, we did a huge, you know, Barrow Man on a, on a, on a back, streetscape, uh, And uh, just a sort of dedication to him with his real name in the corner. And, uh, you know, the outpouring of love that we got from the community um, was great. And that barrow, I think, you know, went to the powerhouse collection. And so it was as much about a contribution to the culture as it was about selling.
1: This is exactly. So, so, you know, hearing about it, not understanding about it, you think it's a shop. It's not a shop. In in some ways, it's analogous to the role that your dad had, but in a different sphere. You were the centre of something. Mm. Yeah. so a, a wonderful story and a, and a huge credit to you
0: yeah it was a lot of fun and you know it it fell in it fell on hard times financially for all the wrong reasons actually it was all about the the administrative back end and how things were you know the systems and all the, the lack thereof the the demand was galloping forward ironically you know at the uh, growing um, you know when, when it went, broke in 1995 like on the day my daughter was born um (laughs) right it's a whole other story (laughs) um it was uh you know almost selling five million dollars worth of stuff out of a, a single shop with a little mail order business It's kind of unheard of numbers uh even by today's standards, you know, well, Would
1: it be fair to suggest that you might not be as interested and excited by the back-end
0: admin than the, <laughs> <laughs> than the ideas, Remo? Or would that be an unfair slur? I was all yin and no yang. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, if anyone needed a, 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 a chief operating officer or a, a financial controlling partner, it was me, but... Um, uh, I was also a bit of a control freak, uh, so it was, for me to share power was, um, was difficult. But, you know, hard lessons got learnt and, uh, you know, I wouldn't go there again.
1: Your fourth choice. Is the place and I know you were in a dilemma you were back and forth on the email do I choose this do I chose that I am so glad that you came down to the 112 population access
0: only by boat tell me <laughs> about Milson's passage <laughs> um, this is a little community on the lower Hawkesbury River uh, one hour north of Sydney like one hour north of Sydney but a thousand years north of Sydney uh, a thousand years ago and um, I uh yeah, because the runner-up was Bondi, as you know, because I'm But you
1: didn't choose, so I, we're not gonna talk we're about We're not it. gonna talk
0: about <laughs> <laughs> I know you love Bondi. Uh, <laughs> Tell me
1: about Milson's passage.
0: Um a circuit breaker, you know, I needed a circuit breaker in in the intensity of of life. Um I needed somewhere to represent And wherein, which could be about rest and reflection and reading and remoteness, um, which was not about intensity and social and network and, you know, everything that the city is about. And, um, you know, the 2016, my mother died. Um, there were some, you know, other, other stresses going on in my life at the time. There was, um you know, health episode, which turned out to be nothing, but it just kind of, um, uh, just gave me pause to reflect. I remember sitting in a cafe, um, in, I'm sorry, Bondi. <laughs> um, and I drew up, uh, a, a, a typical week for my future life. And, and it involved being in Bondi for four nights a week. And being at another place for three nights of the week, which was called Shack. Right. And it it was an abstraction. It was just called Shack and it was about rest and remote and reflection. And given that I'm a kind of a water man, it was always going to need to be near the water. Anyway, I told I showed Melanie this plan. She liked the plan, but she doesn't do abstract. So immediately she was like, Okay, water. Close enough to Sydney, you don't like to drive on public transport. We basically, by process of elimination, we came up with kind of the only, that part of the lower Hawkesby River, which is quite close to the bridge um, that heads to Newcastle there, so just to the left of that, there are a handful of river uh, communities to which you can only get to by boat. So, you you know, we needed to get boat licence. Anyway, we connected with a real estate agent um, who was very, very nice and took us around in a boat to visit a whole bunch of places and we were downsizing in bondi as it happens at the time and we just managed somehow to figure it out financially that we could uh do this and um and we did it and we bought a little shack um well we call it a shack it's it's a it's a house it's a two-bedroom house but it's like a 40s looking thing rustic it's yeah um, on a huge block of land, you know, backing onto the national park with river in front and, uh, and, and with a bunch of neighbors, I think there's 45 homes in the community. Every home has its own jetty. Uh, every jetty has its own boat that gets the owner from the marina to, to the house. Everyone, it's like a country town. But 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 this is it's shits creek. <laughs> it's a, it's Sydney's shits creek. But, the, but we're talking no shop, no post
1: office, no nothing. It it is remote. I mean, you're properly
0: Prop, isolated, proper remote. Um, uh, there is a, the riverboat postman is a boat that um, takes tourists up and down the river. It drops off and collects the mail every day. So uh, so I could send you a letter at milson's Passage. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah wow, stuff okay. arrives there. I mean, okay. you go to the mail shed and someone, you know. Oh, Ron's ordered another box of wine. That's interesting. <laughs> and, and and have you found that
1: you have spent more time there than you imagined in that cafe in Bondi or or, or was your four, three split? Uh, Initially accurate?
0: it was a r- about right. Um, but with COVID, right. you... we've we've skewed it way sure. you know, there. So now it's probably five there and two here. Um I love the balance. Melanie m- m- is more in love with the river than you know she she may be less reliant on the daily dose of Bondi that I get when I come back for a couple of days and do some laps in the pool uh she she would happily just camp out there and uh right in
1: in, in Milson's passage yeah yeah i i wonder i mean this this is a very weird question to ask um you, you guys are so fabulous but are you a nightmare to live with
0: We spend a lot of time together. (laughs) Answer the question. I didn't say how much time did you spend together. I said, are you a nightmare to live with? Well, no, we're not a nightmare to live with. We're actually quite, we're very relaxed parents. um, But we both have fairly strong aesthetic uh, opinions. Right. Where the picture goes, what (laughs) shade of pink the house should be, what gauge of copper for the outdoor shower, you know, and we will eventually um, compromise, but no one's going to roll over for anyone else all that easily. This this
1: is the perfect link to the, (laughs) the, the fifth choice on Five My Life, because you have said in another forum, everything we own retains a meaning for one or both of us. And the fifth choice on Five of My Life is a possession. So I imagine it was a nightmare because you'd have like a thousand things that you potentially could mm. have chosen. Uh, but you've chosen a silver napkin ring. Tell me about that.
0: One of the my father's work associates was this um, cockney, self-made man, millionaire guy called Len Matchin. Um he oversaw a conglomerate of companies um called the cope allman group and and it acquired one of my father's businesses and renamed it as cope allman australia australasia and appointed my father to be chairman of that and so dad having you know worked for himself his whole life all of a sudden was part of this kind of um you know global group based based in London, Len, um, and I had met him a bunch of times on his business trips to Sydney. He was a larger-than-life Cockney kind of character, as you can imagine. When we went, um, visited London um, as a family when I was in my, I can't remember, you know, early teens or younger, a uh, chauffeur picked us up in the roller, took us to a restaurant, served us the roll mops, you know, it was the, it was the whole shebang. Uh, flashy, um... Arthur Daly come good kind of guy. But um, he, as a tax haven thing, he bought this island in in the Channel Islands called Breku and lived on it uh, uh, as the king. So when I was doing my 19-year-old, you know, in between university years uh, trip to Europe, I decided to go visit um, him and his... um, Partner who had been his secretary, uh, Sue, on Breku, And I was once again picked up by helicopter in Jersey, taken to the island, and spent three or four days there. Um, with the king. With the king. And, you know, spending like many, many hours of each of those days being tested by the king. I was a fairly confident 19 year old, but he was really pressuring me for my motivations and he was angry with me some days and then not angry and then he would reminisce about my father and burst into tears and I, I mean he'd be drinking teo pepe, sherry and champagne for most of the day even sitting in the hot sauna I could just imagine he was going to like keel over. Anyway we, we got on we got on well had a wonderful um incredibly formative in some weird way time with him and then two years later this package arrived From him and I opened it, and it was for my twenty-first birthday party and a birthday. And it was a silver napkin ring, hall-stamped with, or you know, his personal coat of arms and the and the uh, the stamp of the island, et cetera, and so forth. And it had my name engraved um, in all capital letters, R E M O, right, on the napkin ring. And um, and it was very powerful. Thing for, at, at some subconscious level, I think, not immediately, but I think seeing my name like that was the first time I the penny started to drop that maybe this name could represent something other than me, myself.
1: Yeah, because c- that's how your brand is. it, 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 yeah, it, yeah. it It's just one, your first name in capitals, not your last name, yeah. and then that becomes the brand that yeah. you so successful yeah so
0: I think it was um perhaps unconsciously on their part they planted a seed that would not sprout for another seven years but I think I can kind of trace it back to that moment when I I first thought of myself as potentially...
1: What a fascinating story. And, yeah. and then you, you've got to live this life, which I, I'd like to ask you about, where how, if at all, do you manage that dichotomy of, of Remo, the nice chap I'm looking at, and Remo, the brand that does all these amazing things, General Thinker, Ted, I mean, you know, you, you're, mm. I, I've, got, I've got a quote here about you, which <laughs> I absolutely love. Remo, and I don't know whether they're talking about Remo, you, or Remo, the brand, but Remo is a bit famous. A familiar name in the right circles and for the right reasons, which I think is just sensational. You, you are so well known and so well loved amongst so certain Just a people. bit, yeah. just a- Well, no, and no, I, I actually think it's in certain circles you you are Lady Gaga meets Madonna meets you know Mahatma Gandhi, and in other circles they go who? <laughs> <laughs> but, but but so how do you manage the the I'm Remo I'm Remo I mean as in hello. Who the hell are you? Does that bother you, or do you just is one the same thing?
0: <clears throat> oh, it doesn't. You know, I quite like um, not having face fame and just having name fame. It's it's always nice to be able to live anonymously, and also the you know the core of the people who know my work, oh, with the exception of Sydney, are um, you know getting older. So um, uh, a lot of the met. Is probably coming from people you know who are the next generation but um no often often i'll have s- like we just uh sold the vacant block of land next to the shack that came with the shack uh to a guy from the eastern suburbs and uh i happened to like just bump into him the night before last he was he was at gelberson's on lamrock avenue and i was with roman and his girlfriend katie and. Uh, we had a chat, and the first thing he said to me was, "And this is after we've exchanged contracts, settled whatever, whatever." And he's from. He's somebody says, "So you're that Remo? <laughs> <laughs> I just figured out who you are. Right. So you're that
1: guy." <laughs> so, so that's that. You've you've cracked the code. Actually, that's nice. You've you've got a sort of fame on your own terms. I mean, fame. What a stupid word. But you, you've you've got a, a mm. profile, but it doesn't it doesn't mess with you at all. It's it's an asset rather than a.
0: I'm interested in Profile not for its own sake, only for um, as a result of doing good work. You know, for me, it's all about the work. Um, It's just been a delight talking to you, mate. I'm
1: I'm so glad that you came on. I got a lot out there, didn't I? Yeah, you did. I I love it. And none about bloody Bondi. We we, we did it. Um, Tell me that there's a sixth question. Yeah which I'm really enjoying, but we're going to get around to all these people eventually, but we've got so many people coming on and wanting mm. to come on. But uh, we have a tradition where we ask all our guests who they uh, would like to hear on Five My Life next, and then we make a note. And uh, okay. So who would you like to hear on Five My
0: Life next? Um, I think Dare would be good. Yeah? Dare Jennings. Okay. Tell me why. Um, he's just got a very interesting, you know, he's from Griffith, Country, Country Boy, sort of fell into being a kind of global fashion entrepreneur he um started a silk screening you know t-shirts for rock and roll tours and we met very soon after the penny dropped for him that he should that he would make more money out of um and get more satisfaction out of creating a brand of his own designs which which was mambo then producing tens of thousands of hard rock cafe t-shirts and selling them to the promoter you know so
1: well i look forward to hearing uh, his choices Rame, thank you so much for sharing your five on five my life mm, thanks nigel. the five of my life was presented by me nigel marsh created in collaboration with podcast one australia producer alex mitchell sound production and theme music by darcy thompson and matt Nicklish. For more episodes, search the Five of My Life podcast. Go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.